following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Uh, We are thankful that you have joined us this morning. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. It's a joy to be able to preach to you this morning. If you are observant, you've seen that I've upgraded a little bit and got this binder uh, I used to preach with just pieces of paper, but I've recently done a couple weddings, and then without a pulpit at a wedding, I didn't think it would be good to just be moving pages around. So definitely have upgraded. I don't have a 52-inch big screen iPad like Pastor Justin has yet, but maybe I will get there one day. But if you're new here to Sacred City, uh, you come at somewhat of a unique time. So we just finished a series um, on the Lord's Prayer, and now we are in the second week of a series on marriage. But that's not the norm here at Sacred City. We typically preach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible because we believe that that's the best way to teach the whole counsel of God. And I'm excited to get back into that as we are going to dive into the book of Revelation soon. But the staff and the elders just felt like it would be good for the discipleship of our people if we actually zoned in on some specific topics for these past couple weeks. So that's where we find ourselves today, a second week in a seven-week series on an extremely important and an extremely relevant topic for all of us here. A series on marriage is most certainly not just for those who are currently married or are soon to be married. Yes, of course, that is who it was speaking specifically to, but for the Christians in this room, whether you are married or not, I can guarantee that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are married or are soon to be married. And a way of being loving towards them, as God has called us to be, would be to know as much about marriage as possible so that God can use you to help them in any way possible so that their marriage can thrive. But even more than that, for everyone in here, as we learn from the author J.I. Packer in one of his most popular books, he asked a couple questions. He said, what were we made for? What is the best thing in life? What is your aim in life? His answers, knowing God. And as you will see throughout this series, marriage can be and is supposed to be one of the greatest displays of God that we know of. So looking into it can help us to know him better. Over the next seven weeks, yes, we want to be able to help broken marriages. We want good marriages to become great. We want future marriages to go well. We want Sacred City to be known as a church who puts a high value on marriage but primarily what we want is our great God to be displayed. We want our great King to be made much of. We want the great giver of this gift called marriage and every other good and perfect gift. We want that giver to be worshiped. I was just going to ask, can I get an amen to that? But Joel helped me out. (laughs) So let me pray and then we'll get to work. Father God, it is, um, because of you that we're here this morning. We are here to worship you as we've already been doing. We're not here to to learn how to be a better person, how to be a better citizen society. We're not even here to talk specifically about this marriage to how to be a better spouse, Lord. Those things are all good, but we know they only come from being changed by you. And we're changed by you by beholding the face of Christ, by looking up and seeing how amazing you are and how unamazing we are, and see this huge gap between it, and then also know that you filled that gap with yourself, that you've brought us near so that we can look to you and see glory, 
that we can look to you and see glory and then let it affect our lives, Lord. So we do want broken marriages to be restored. We do want good marriages to become great. We do want future marriages to go well, Lord. But most of all, we want you to be displayed. We want you to change us, Lord. So we ask that you would do that for us today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we started this series. Last week, Pastor Justin did a great job of setting this series up, talking about the power of marriage. If you haven't listened to that, I suggest going back and listening to that. But what we're going to be talking about today is the definition of marriage. What does it mean to be married to another? My hope is to keep this simple and show you three things today. Number one, God's definition of marriage. Number two, how and why we've moved so far away from that. And number three, how we can get back there and start enjoying it. Now we live in a culture that has a very diverse opinion on marriage. Some people see it as a good thing, something to pursue as part of the American dream. They see it as something that will be part of a fulfilling life because they're looking for love and companionship and maybe protection or being provided for. Others see it as ridiculous though something that would not even come close to offering them a happy and fulfilling life because it would limit their options, take away their freedom. We also have those that see it as oppressive to women specifically and the cultural pressures that are on women to get married make it difficult for a woman woman to live out the life that maybe they want to really live while others see it as something that's not that big of a deal have a I could take it or leave it type attitude. Some or all of those views on marriage most likely are represented in some way in this room. So my hope is as we hear about God's definition of marriage, each of these views would be challenged. But before we get to God's definition, let's look at something else that we think of as all-knowing. If we Google definition of marriage, this is what we get. Marriage is the legally and formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship. Now, there's some good things about this. We should look at this and say, we, that's good, two people, not a person and a dog. We should like the relationship part. That's definitely what marriage is, a relationship between a man and a woman. The legal and formal part we can get on board with that shows that it's a big deal. But what I like most about this definition is this word union. Union means to be joined together. And that's how scripture talks about marriage. We see that here in our passage in Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles and want to open them up, we'll take a look at that. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, there should be some Bibles in the aisles. We're going to start in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Now, really quickly, before we dive into this verse, I want to say why we want to look to the Bible to define marriage. We believe here at Sacred City that the Bible is the perfect word of God that it's the primary authority for our lives. So if one is a Christian, when wanting to know something of any given topic, the first thing that should be done is to see if God has anything to say about it. 
And the foundation of what we believe about that topic should first be informed by God through his word. We don't take in information from outside sources, create our own worldview, and then see if the Bible lines up with that. We let the Bible shape our worldview and then, and then look at the other outside information through the lens of what God says. This is why we want to get our definition from scripture. Now, some of you are not Christians here and didn't know that and maybe don't agree with that. Some of you here are very new Christians and didn't know that, but have a desire for that. But there's also people in here who are further along in their Christian walk and did know that. So you're thinking, duh, Pastor Alex, of course, everything in our lives should be informed by God. Of course, my view of marriage should be shaped by what God says about marriage. Well, if that is you, I'm thankful that that is the case, that you already know that. But here's my question. Is this the case for you? Is your view of of marriage primarily shaped by what God says about marriage? Or is your view of marriage primarily shaped by something else? Like the culture or sitcoms or what you witnessed with your parents' marriage? Not that all of these things have to mean that you have the complete wrong view of marriage. But if God is not the primary influence on your understanding of marriage, then it is shifting stand, sand that you are standing on. Last week we heard that if that is the case, we more than likely will either idolize marriage or demonize marriage. Neither of those are good. So we want the Bible to shape our view on marriage. That is what will be best for us. This is because as we see here in this passage, which is the Apostle Paul quoting Genesis 2, it was not the culture or tradition that instituted marriage into this world, but God. Someone brought up the other night at our missional community gathering that they used to think that marriage was started by people. And these people lived in a time when the average life expectancy was only 30 to 40 years. So since that was the case, marriage was never meant to be a lifelong commitment. If the people lived longer than 40 years, then they wouldn't have realized how dumb that was and set it up to switch spouses after a while. But we see in scripture that marriage is part of God's plan, not man's. Part of God's story. He is the one that gave it to us. I also think the Bible says that Adam lived like 930 years, so... The 30, 40 year life expectancy thing was a little off. But if marriage is God's design, this means that if we want marriage to go well for us, if we want it to be part of the joy we experience in this life, then it has to be done the way this designer says it should be done. We can't make up our own definition of marriage and do it however we think is right. The Bible speaks to that as well. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man but in the end, its way is death. I believe we're seeing the truth of that proverb play out in our culture currently with marriage. As the divorce rate continues to rise, more people are avoiding even attempt at marriage and more children are growing up in single parent homes. I was thinking about this the other night. Throughout my childhood from ages five to 18 years old, I probably had 10 really good friends that I spent most of my time with. Other than myself, Only one of them grew up in a family where their parents got and stayed married. The rest never were married or were divorced. 
It's very sad. And those statistics haven't improved since I was a kid. We have to get back to the way God says marriage should be done. So let's look at it. In verse 31, we see a couple important terms. Leave and hold fast. We preach from the ESV translation of the Bible where it uses hold fast, which you may be more familiar with the King James version that says cleave. That seems to be the more common to quote, leave and cleave. I think most of us know what leave means. We probably could spend a lot of time on that actually, but I won't. I want to spend time on the second part of that phrase. What does cleave or hold fast mean? This term comes from a Greek word, which I am not going to try to pronounce, but means to be devoted to, to be tied to legally, to be committed totally to, to be stuck to. All words that speak to this union between two people, a man and a woman being joined together, joined together in such a way that there are no longer two fleshes, but as verse 31 continues to say, they shall become one flesh. It's a union. This leave and cleave language, leave and hold fast and become one flesh is important for us to get. Again, if God is the almighty and creator, creator and sustainer of all things, then if he says this is how marriage is supposed to work, then we should sh- strive to have a full understanding of what that means. Not just out of obedience to him because he deserves our obedience as the creator and sustainer, but because he is good, then following his ways will lead to our joy and satisfaction. This is very important because we live in a time where these terms, especially hold fast and become one flesh, are being demonized. As we've already referenced, there are many people in our culture who are choosing not to be married because being stuck to, committed to, tied legally to another person forever sounds awful to them. It will limit their freedom and spontaneity and ultimately prevent them from ever being happy. There are also many people who have actually stepped into a marriage with these same thoughts, which results in a very dull marriage at best and a destructive marriage at worst, one that will leave much hurt in its path and may even end in death. What's interesting is this demonization of what marriage is supposed to be comes from us thinking that this way is going to rob us of our happiness, of our fulfillment. Therefore, we rebel against it and avoid marriage or desire to be out of it and maybe fantasize about what it would be like to to be single again. But what statistics show is people who enter into marriage and stay in that marriage are far happier, far more secure financially, and produce kids who are much more successful in life than those who never get married, cohabitate, or divorce and stay single. So the very thing that most people want in life has a greater chance of happening if they were to step into and stay in the very thing they're trying to avoid or wishing that they would have avoided. This is some evidence that God's way is the correct way, that it's good. A man and a woman holding fast to each other, becoming one flesh. That's what marriage is. That's its definition, this union. But what holds them together? John Piper, in a sermon on this passage we are looking at, says, The words hold fast and become one flesh point to something very deep and permanent. These words point to marriage as a sacred covenant, rooted in covenant commitments that 
stand against every storm as long as they both shall live. Covenant. That's a word that's maybe new for some of us. Covenants are binding agreements, legal commitments that are extremely serious in nature. In the Old Testament, when covenants were made, two parties, between two parties, vows were given, public ratifications were carried out. Here's how they used to do it. They would take an animal, they would tear that animal in two. They would lay that animal on the ground and then both parties would walk through that animal. What this was saying is, I promise to keep this covenant. And if I don't, let me be like this animal, torn in half. Blood was spilled with covenants and a commitment to keep that covenant or having their own blood spilled was the consequence. That's the seriousness of covenants. Well, God says, marriage is a man and a woman making a sacred covenant. A covenant that is not only between the two of them, but it's also connected to him as well. How do we know that? If we look at the gospel of Mark chapter 10, verse 9, we see Jesus saying when speaking about the passage in Genesis, the two fleshes becoming one flesh, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's not just the state making a marriage legal that joins people together. It's not just their physical and emotional attraction to each other. It's God. So in marriage, two people are making a serious commitment to each other and to God. A commitment that is going to take discipline, authority, hard work, they are going to have to seat each other now as husband and wife and publicly vowed to commit to that until death do them part. Now this isn't very sexy, is it? It may sound too legal and boring and dry, the complete opposite of why most people think about getting married. This is true, it's not very sexy. It speaks little of the passionate romance, romantic love that we all desire to have with our spouse. Words like discipline, hard work, sacrifice probably don't sound like love words to us. They aren't ooey-gooey, are they? They aren't on the Valentine's Day card at Hallmark or at the dollar store, wherever you get those for your spouse. These words are probably a little uncomfortable for us to hear. There's a reason that is the case, a reason why we don't like this. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that God's definition of marriage as a sacred covenant is the best way to view marriage. It's the way to the happiest and most satisfying marriage possible. But again, that's hard to believe and accept. So why? Why is God's design for marriage so hard to accept as the best way? And why have we moved so far away from it? Well, I think if you've been around Sacred City, for any time at all, you know the Sunday school answer to that. It's sin. That's a classic answer that I get from my sons when I ask them why something happened. <laughs> Tatum says, Tatum says something hurtful towards his brother. So I say, Tatum, why would you want to speak to your brother in that way? Because I'm a sinner, dad. <laughs> That's correct. That's a part of what I'm trying, wanting him to see. But we have to go deeper than that. 
We have to go deeper than that if the fight against sin is ever going to be won more and more. He has to see what's going on in his heart that led him to his action. So whatever that is can be confessed and prayed for and turned from. And most importantly, so that he can, when he looks to Jesus, he can see that Jesus didn't have that in his heart, even though he was tempted to have that in his heart. He can also see that Jesus died for that in his heart, even though he didn't deserve to die for that. That's what needs to happen if we are ever going to have a marriage that is good for us and glorifying to Christ. We have to see what's leading us away from his design so that we can go through that repentance and faith process. We will get back to that later. But what is it? What is specifically pulls us down this road of wanting to do marriage our way or not wanting to do marriage at all? As Pastor Justin spoke about last week, at the core It's this self-centeredness that we all have. This bent inwardness that we all have as fallen creatures combined with the fallen nature of the world that makes God's way of doing marriage extremely difficult because we are completely blind to seeing the goodness and glory in it. Throw on top of that our jacked up idea of what love is and you maybe can start to understand how important it is to have the Holy Spirit, God's word, prayer, community, all of these things on our side if we want marriages to look more like they should. Take a self-centered human being and throw him or her in a culture that actually promotes this quality and you have a mess on your hands. Our culture has been greatly influenced by two isms, for lack of a better term, individualism and consumerism. Individualism says, I need what I need. I want what I want. I am most important, not the whole, not any group that I'm a part of, like the family or the church or the city. Consumerism says, I am here to consume and do that in the most cost effective way possible. So my relationships are primarily about what I can get from them, not what I can give to them. The only reason to give is if I'm going to receive a good ROI, return on investment bring those two pieces of our culture's influence into something like marriage, and you can see why we've moved so far away from God's design for it. These two isms will give us this view on marriage that says that it's all about me. So if what I believe about marriage is going to lead to the greatest good for me, then <clears throat> so if what I believe about marriage is not going to lead to the greatest good for me, then I will avoid it, I will leave it, or wait until I find my soulmate who will bring me everything that I want in life. My happiness and my fulfillment is what's most important. So as an intelligent consumer, if it's most cost effective for me to get that from multiple relationships or even one relationship that I don't have to fully commit to and I can kind of do my own thing, fill my sexual desires with other means, emotional needs with other means, then that's what I'm going to do. This way of thinking blocks us from ever being able to enjoy this amazing gift of marriage designed by God, which is the greatest horizontal relationship we can ever experience. God's design says a great marriage isn't measured by how much you are able to get out of it, but by how much you are able to give into it. How much you are able to give up for your spouse instead of how much you are able to get them to give up for you. That's what biblical love is like. 
Again, this is radical for a fallen human being and more so for a fallen human being whose worldview comes from something other than God's word. Most people know very little of this type of covenantal love, know very little of what it means to hold fast to your spouse and become one flesh. Again, it's hard to see the goodness and glory in it. This is why it's so common for people to say things like, I don't need a piece of paper to love you. I'm already married to you in my heart. What that statement is saying is my love for you isn't based on a covenant. It's based in my feelings. And right now I feel like loving you. And right now I feel like receiving love from you. But the love that I have for you isn't on the marriage level yet. That's what our culture wants to tell us about love. It is this feeling that one has, that one falls into. It just happens to them, which means one can fall out of it as well. It means that it could unhappen to them. That's what it encourages us to look for. Find someone who you, you have this feeling towards and that returns that feeling back to you. This type of love we see in the movies or read about in romance novels. Not that I read romance novels. <laughs> or hear about in songs on the radio. It's crazy how much it can impact us and shape our desires though. Make us not want the biblical definition of love, which is primarily covenantal, and only want the cultural definition of love, which is primarily emotional. Right now, I feel like loving you. I feel like receiving love from you. But in the future, that could change because many times our feelings are uncontrollable, much more uncontrollable than our actions, which is really what covenantal love is going to take. Love as an action, not just a feeling. You can see this contrast I'm speaking of. If you've ever listened to vows at a wedding where the couple has written their own compared to traditional Christian vows. People's personal vows most times sound like this. I love you so much. I'm so happy with you. You're so funny. I love your smile. You are the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I want to share my life with you. Completely based on how they feel about each other at that given time. But traditional Christian vows aren't about feelings. The feelings are assumed. They say things like, I promise to be loving to you. I promise to be tender. I promise to be kind. I promise to be faithful. I promise to cherish you no matter how I feel. Biblical love is shown in how much I'm willing to sacrifice for another person. How much am I willing to deny my choices for another that's the type of love the Bible calls us to. But again, how scary is that? If we've been shaped by the culture, it's very scary because that's the total opposite of individualism and consumerism. That type of love doesn't allow for me to bounce around from relationship to relationship, shopping for the right one to fill my current need or desire that I have. Whether that be better sex, more financial security, more emotional connection, or someone who just allows me to be me. It doesn't allow for me to leave my options open and enter into some short-term romance with someone other than my spouse because I feel like that's what's going to make me happy. That's what makes it so scary. We think that we have to sacrifice our passion, sacrifice our romance, sacrifice our happiness. But in reality, it's not that we will have to sacrifice those things. That's the problem. But I believe the problem is that we have too low-minded of an idea 
of all those things. What do I mean by that? It's kind of like how most people have lost the ability to enjoy the wonderful taste of liver. I had to do it, right? I've been up here 10 times and I haven't said a word about health the entire time. But liver is amazing food. It's the most nutrient-dense food on the planet, if you didn't know that. And along with other organ meats, has been eaten for thousands of years. It has only been very recent that we started eating muscle meats, and they become dominant type of meat that we eat. Prior to this, organs were the prized cuts of meats, and muscle meats were fed to the dogs. But now we've been conditioned to eat muscle meat, and not only that, but we need sauce on it, we need cheese on it, we need to mix it with noodles, put it on a piece of bread. All of this... That's good. All of this has ruined our taste buds and caused us to miss out on something much greater. We stay blinded to how happy, healthy, and strong it could make us. Now, that's probably the best analogy that's ever been given on the stage, but the same idea goes for our passionate, romantic, happy marriages. We have this idea of how a passionate, romantic, and happy marriage would go. And that idea comes from the culture. Because we've been influenced by the culture so much, our taste buds for those things have been ruined. It's been ruined for, some, ruined for something much better. We forget that we have a God that is out for the good of his children. And that if he designed marriage, then he designed it in a way that it would include all the th good things that we desire but we are blinded to the type of love that will truly make us happy and allow for real passionate love and romance. We struggle to embrace his way of getting there, which keeps us from not only enjoying it, but we also never even desire it. That brings us to our last point. How can we get back to not only desiring God's way, but being able to enjoy it also? The first thing that needs to be said here is the Bible speaks pretty clearly to the impossibility of desiring God's way if you've not been changed by him first. At our core, we are sinful, self-focused, desiring our own way and want nothing to do with God or his way. It is not until we are regenerated or what Jesus called born again that we can choose God and his way. So if you have not been born again, everything that I have said about God's definition of marriage and how good it is probably still sounds like foolishness to you. But if a marriage is going to look more like what God wants a marriage to look like, then both the husband and the wife have to desire his way. And for that to happen, both have to first be born again. But it continues to be a battle from there. God's way of marriage is so glorious and hard to imagine that even it was even hard for his disciples to fully accept it. Even they couldn't see how it was the best way after they heard Jesus teach on it. They were also in the battle against sin, the enemy in the world. What's this mean? It means that if it was a fight for them, it's no different for us. It means that if God's way of doing marriage is so glorious and we are so unlike him, it's going to take hard work and discipline and sacrifice if it's going to go well for us. 
sin, Satan, and the culture all want to keep us self-centered, want to keep us from laying down our lives for our spouses, want to keep us from obedience to God and enjoying his plan for us. It's always interesting to me when I work with engaged couples in preparation for their future marriage. Emily and I have met with numerous couples that clearly have feelings for each other. They care for each other. They enjoy each other's company. All great things, but not enough to enter into battle with. You can just see as we discuss important topics like communication, money, parenting, sex, the surprise on some of their faces and disbelief of what was just said about these topics by their future spouse. They start to realize the weight of what they're actually getting into. Tears happen. Screaming happens. Withdrawal and emotional shutdown happens. And I'm sitting there like... Because I know they're getting a small picture of real life, of what a real marriage is going to look like, the hard work that it's going to take. And they have to reflect. They have to deeply think and make a decision. When the ooey-gooey feelings go away, am I willing to stay put? Can I really spend the rest of my life with this guy who is freaking out on me right now, not letting me get a word in because he has so much pride in his heart that he has to be right? Am I really willing to spend the rest of my life with this woman who just said that she expects to have sex maybe one time per week when I thought it was going to be at least one time per day? (laughs) That literally happens almost every time we talk about it. But they start to realize the battle ahead of them. This battle terminology might be scary to some of you who are not married yet, but I only use it to emphasize the seriousness Marriage defines the most important human relationship that God offers. If we do step into that relationship, it is no casual thing. Thinking of it as a fight or a battle might not sound like joyful, but marriage is very similar to the Christian life itself. The Christian life is a battle. That's the story that we've entered into. But God has not put us in that story to be miserable. He has put us in that story to fight for joy and experience that joy. So marriage being this serious shouldn't be a surprise to us. As Christians, we should be used to a battle. And what I want us to think about is the joy that armies have when winning and especially after they've won a battle. They're much happier. They're much more excited than people who are just sitting at home doing nothing. So what we need to know then is how to win this battle. How can we not only desire this sacred covenant of marriage, but also enjoy it? The next step after being born again and committing your life to Christ would be actually entering into that covenant with another. Now, I don't believe that all people are supposed to be married. Scripture, again, is pretty clear about that. The Apostle Paul was not married. And even said that he believed that it was better for a man to not get married so that he could more fully devote their life to Christ. But those aren't the people that we're talking about this morning. We are talking about people who have this desire to be married because they have heard God's plan for marriage and want the joy that it brings. Obviously, if you don't step into marriage, you will never experience that. But I said, enter into a covenant, sign the piece of paper. It's important. 
making your vows public before God and witnesses, putting a ring on the finger of your spouse, signing the marriage license are all parts of showing your commitment to this relationship. That covenant covenant is binding, remember. It is something to fall back on when feelings aren't there. When the fight gets hard, when pride runs wild, when you start to have kids and you feel like they are more important to your spouse than you are, or work gets busy and you feel like work is more important to your spouse than you are. That's one of the reasons God did it this way. He knows our sinful ways. He knows how much our feelings change. He knows that we need something more stable than just telling someone you love them occasionally and living together. He knows that two sinful people need to be glued together if this relationship is going to work. After that, it's putting yourself in an environment that encourages repentance and faith. Why is that important? As Christians, we believe that the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life and then died a death that we deserve for our sins. When we first believed that, we repented of our sins and put our faith in that good news. Once that happens for the rest of a Christian's life, he or she is made more aware of how holy God is and how sinful they actually are. And they continue this rhythm of repenting of that sinfulness and trusting, turning to their faith in Christ. This is how a Christian matures, how they become more like Jesus. And this is also the way to a God-honoring, happy, and healthy marriage. The more a husband and a wife become like Jesus, the more power they have to do marriage the way God wants them to. And the more power they have to enjoy that type of marriage. Which I think is amazing. As Justin said last week, marriage is one of the most powerful areas God uses to change us and make us look more like Christ. And then I just said that God, <clears throat> that God uses uh, making us more look, looking more like Christ to desire and enjoy our marriage. That's what's called a virtuous cycle, a cycle we want to be in. So what's that environment look like? Here's where we get a little practical. It looks like surrounding yourself, filling your life with what are called God's means of grace. There are many means of grace, but the most, three most common and I would say most powerful are his word, prayer, and community. Very quickly, I will go through some examples of this, how this would work, and then we will close. His word. Being in his word often and thoughtfully, his word reminds us of who he is, what he has done, what he's in the process of doing. It also reminds us of who we are what we have done, what we continue to do. Those things point us to what? That gap, that chasm that we just talked about between us and God, how holy he is and how unholy we are, which then should point us to how amazing it is that the cross, that Jesus' life and work bridges that gap. Apply that to marriage. If we see how loving God is toward us, regardless of how much we reject him and go our own way, that will affect us in a way that gives us the power to do the same for our spouse. We say, I know God's called me to sacrifice my needs for the needs of my spouse. 
but I'm so frustrated with them right now. I don't even want to look at them, let alone meet any needs they have. What's more powerful for that situation? Hunkering down and saying, stop being so selfish and just go love your spouse? Or actually going to his word, remembering how frustrating you are, how much you've done that God should actually not be able to look at you. But then remembering because Jesus, he still does look at you and pursues you and lays his life down for you. That's where the real power lies. Being in his word takes us there. Prayer, especially prayer that follows being reminded of what God has told us in his word, where we adore God for what we were just reminded of, then confess to him first the hardness of our heart and the hardness towards our spouse and toward marriage, then thanking him for forgiving us for that, still accepting us, then asking him for the strength to pursue our spouse, the strength to lay aside our selfishness, the strength to lay aside our preferences. Prayer is where God's grace to you can be made real and then be extended to your spouse. Community. This is church community. We like to call missional communities around here. A community that cares about your marriage. A community that cares about your discipleship, not just your happiness or pleasure. A community that can look in at your life and celebrate when you are actually winning in that life, winning in that marriage, or lovingly call you to something better when you're losing in that life, losing in that marriage. A community that's going to pray for you and point you back to Jesus. You don't get that at the gym. You don't get this at the group of coworkers that you go to lunch with. You don't get this with any other form of community, only a community of grace, a gospel-centered community. So if we are going to stay in this covenant relationship that God's called us to and enjoy this covenant relationship that God's called us to, it is going to be God using his means of grace to continually remind us of our need for it and how good it is. Pastor Timothy Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, beautifully describes how if we commit to something that God says is good, if we put ourselves in this environment with his means of grace, if we commit to something like marriage as a covenant, even when we can't see its goodness, over time, our desire for it grows and grows. That's the way God set it up. He describes how duty can become delight. This means that the hard work, the discipline, the sacrifice that goes into keeping this covenant we made to our spouse, even when we don't feel like it, will breed deeper passion for them. It will breed deeper romance with them. And it will mean more happiness and more satisfaction and fulfillment for our lives. That is the hope for all of us that are currently married or will be married in the future. This is how we will serve our spouse with the vision of their future glory. I pray that we can embrace that, celebrate its goodness. But there's something that has to do with marriage that is even greater than that. And I pray all of us can embrace and celebrate. In the next verse in Ephesians, verse 32, Paul tells us, 
that there's a profound mystery that he's writing about. This profound mystery is that marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant love for his church. This holding fast and becoming one flesh is a picture of Christ's commitment to love his bride. A love that was so deep that he gave up his life for her, purchased her with his blood, unites himself with her to wash her and make her holy so that she could be ready to be presented back to God one day. Everything that we are called to, to do in our marriages, Christ has done perfectly. The great mystery that we are called to do in our marriages, he has done perfectly. The great mystery that we are called to model, that God wants to use to show his own glory, is the same mystery that we can look to and receive grace when we fail to model it. The bride that Christ died for and is washing and making holy and blameless is Christians. It's God's sons and daughters. Sons and daughters who haven't lived up to his standard. Sons and daughters who haven't always desired his way of marriage. Who haven't always enjoyed it as a gift. Who haven't loved and treated their spouse in the way that he asked of us. Sons and daughters who maybe have failed in their marriages or are failing right now in their marriages and are bringing much pain for themselves and their families. Sons and daughters who have been hurt by marriages or maybe right now being hurt in a marriage. There's good news for all of that. That good news is that Christ is the perfect bridegroom. He gives us perfect forgiveness. He gives us perfect acceptance. He gives us perfect love. And if you are a Christian, because you have been brought together, you have been united with him in the new covenant There is no man or anything else in all creation that can separate you from him. Rejoice in that. And remember it as we come to the table this morning. This is a meal that we take every week together to remember with our minds and with our hearts and with our bodies this great Jesus, who he is, what he's done. To remember the covenant that we are in with him. The covenant that is impossible to be broken. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that you are the perfect bridegroom. We do thank you that even though we fail to do our part in this marriage with you, that you never leave us, you never forsake us, that we're always united with you. And that's not anything that we've ever done to do that, to earn that. It's not everything that we've ever not done to earn that. It's because you've loved us. It's because you sacrificially love us. So we're thankful for that. We're thankful as we think about all the ways we've failed in our marriages, all the ways that we've failed to keep the covenant. We thank you that you've never failed because you've chosen us and you've united us with yourself, we will have future glory. We will have the wedding day one day where you're walking us down the aisle, presenting us back to our father and he can look at us and we can be acceptable to him because of the blood of Christ. So let us rejoice in that today. Let us be blown away by it. Let us actually affect us, Lord.
change our hearts with it. Because we know if we are changed by that good news, then our lives will change also. Our marriages will look different. Broken marriages will be restored. Good marriages will become greater. Future marriages will go well because we've actually been changed by the only thing that can really change us, and that's you. So we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.